0: it's time for forward nation radio now here he is the host of forward nation radio david leventhal welcome to forward nation radio i'm david leventhal Special welcome for all you Rush Limbaugh listeners who are tuning in because your usual source is, well, dead. Yes, still deriving a lot of pleasure out of that one, am I? On today's show, though, speaking of Rush Limbaugh, conservatism is in flames. And I'm not going to be talking about the fire and brimstone type of flames that conservatism has been for many years, thanks to the likes of Rush Limbaugh and others. But the fact that the foundations of conservative, what'll pass for intellectual thought, are being utterly dismantled by, what's that term? Reality. We're going to talk about the discrediting of whatever's left of conservatism through analyzing some of the big news stories of the week. We will also be starting with the question, will it even matter? Conservative theory is being utterly discredited by facts and reality. But at this point in this country, as we've been talking about, does it even matter? Will it matter to this country? This country, we are reminded again this week, so lacks democracy and so consists of one political organization, criminal political organization, that so believes in cheating, that this minority criminal organization manages to, if not maintain minority rule, which they will often do, at least minority obstructionism. Given the state of democracy in America today, the the anti-democratic foundations of this country, and the fact that one criminal organization is just willing to cheat its way to success— is governing this country ever going to be possible? And I ask this, of course, in the context of the Senate parliamentarian basically killing the minimum wage increase that Democrats wanted to add to their to their uh, COVID relief bill. Why? It's bad enough. Whether the parliamentarian's decision was the right one or not, what's happening here, for those who don't know, The Democrats do not have a filibuster-proof majority in the United States Senate. I have been talking at length about how the the Senate is 50-50. The Democrats only control it because the vice president is Democratic and that breaks the tie. So the Democrats control the Senate. I've been talking for a long time about how the 50-50 tie results despite the fact that Democrats represent more than 40 million more people in the Senate. It's only the Senate's anti-Democratic nature that even keeps it close and allows Republicans to filibuster everything the Democrats are going to want to do, which means in order to pass any legislation, including the relief bill, the Democrats are going to need to pick up at least 10 Republicans. The Democrats were hoping through the process of reconciliation, budget reconciliation, to avoid the filibuster when it came to a minimum wage increase. Through budget reconciliation, you can't, well, you can't filibuster a reconciliation bill. So the Democrats could have passed it with their bare majority if they had held their bare majority together. The Senate parliamentarian ruled that this did not qualify for reconciliation because it didn't really have an impact on the budget. And so. We're back to Democrats not being able to pass anything other than obvious budgetary measures or budget-affecting measures because of the makeup of the United States Senate, which advances the interests of minorities. How evident is this in this case? Something around 70% of Americans support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Something like 70%. Those numbers are unheard of in America getting 70% of people to agree on anything. But despite the fact that 70% of Americans support raising the minimum wage for $15 an hour, it can be filibustered by 41 Republican senators representing, and I've done the math along with others, under 21% of the country. That's right. One-fifth of this country, or senators representing one-fifth of this country, can just stop the United States government in its tracks. Some more numbers I've I've run on this subject. There are fewer people representing that 21% of the country that can stop the government in its tracks than are in the states of California, New York, and Illinois, which together unlike the 41 seats that just over 20% of this country gets, gets six Senate seats. Not 41, but six. Gosh, it's, it's such a close call. Again, California, New York, and Illinois represent more people than the Republicans who are stopping government from running. This is insanity, and I remind you all that this country Cannot move forward until something is done about this. 15 states with 38 million people elect 30 Republican senators. 15 states with 38 million people elect 30 Republican senators. Whereas California with 40 million people gets two. Right. Aren't you proud to live in the world's greatest democracy? That isn't anything like a democracy? Reminder, it's expected only to get worse when, perhaps by 2040, 70% of the U.S. population will be located in 15 states, thereby represented by 30 U.S. senators, 70% of the population. Good luck, people. Anyway, let's start a discussion of the of the destruction of conservative ideology with COVID. The latest COVID numbers, more than 28 million Americans have now been infected with COVID. We have, as I promised you last week, an eerie promise, suppressed the half a million American dead mark. We're just about at 510,000 as of the time I'm recording this, Americans dead. It gives us an opportunity to to go back to our longtime discussions of Who has killed more Americans in history who isn't a corporate leader than our former president, Donald Trump? Whose numbers, and it's hard to get an accurate count, but when one compares how America did with the coronavirus compared to European countries and other first world democracies where leaders actually tried to squelch this, there's no question at this point that you've got a pretty strong argument that the man is responsible for several hundred thousand dead Americans. Murdering Americans, basically. The good news, of course, on COVID. The trends are positive. The numbers are finally going down, down dramatically. Uh, nursing homes, for instance, this is just in the news, that nursing homes have seen something like an 80% drop, the nexus of American deaths. And that 80% drop, by the way, is not based on numbers coming from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. So it's actually uh, probably accurate nursing home numbers. Tremendous drops, tremendous drops in the, uh, in the rate of people contracting the infection and the number of people dying, so the news is good. We don't know where we're going with this, of course, as we're seeing more variants come out. We're not sure ultimately if COVID is going to outrace us as we continue to try to modify vaccines or get upgrade our vaccines to, to address different variants whether COVID's going to mutate quicker than we're able to address that. But right now it's looking promising. So this gives me an opportunity to say here we are not even in March of 2011 and already the leadership of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party are already solving COVID. Okay, you might be sitting here thinking, that's kind of a little unfair to give the Democrats and Biden credit for this already. And you might be right. But it does give me an opportunity to point out that if you're asking that question, well, it just shows that people on the left aren't like people on the right. Because I am reminded of this when I'm, when I'm writing that joke, that literally on his first day in office, Donald Trump, who had been telling us how awful the U.S. economy was, told us that the U.S. economy was better because of Donald Trump on his first day. And Republicans all across America were like, yep, yep, sounds good to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's right. So, just for a second, just to know what it's like, what it, what it feels like to be on the other side where you could spew blatant bullshit and get away with it. I just want to say that Biden and the Democrats are curing COVID in America. Anyway, to, to move on with conservatism in flames, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, is having is its annual conference uh, starting th- this week, a couple of days ago. And, well, by annual conference, I, of course, I mean... It's super spreader event, given the number of people by reports who are not masked at the CPAC conference. Now, here we are, CPAC super spreader 2021. Otherwise, we could call it the wine fest 2021, wine with an H in it, not not the beverage, because it's just wine, 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 wine already headed off by the keynote speaker, who will, of course, be our beloved and great and esteemed and twice impeached, twice defeated at the polls, former President Donald Trump, giving the keynote address. And reminding, as this whole conference is, that the Republican Party, for their occasional talk otherwise, is firmly Donald Trump's party. It is firmly under the bodice of Donald Trump. It is, we are reminded during CPAC, a political party absolutely bereft of ideas. They've got nothing. Now, to be fair, that's because, as we're going to be talking about, everything they used to have has been discredited. That wouldn't stop them. The problem is that much of what they used to have has been discredited by the guy who they're now hero-worshipping, the cult leader, Donald Trump. Oh, what it must be to be a Republican. CPAC, the super spreader conference of 2021 is all about two things, which is what the Republican party is right now. Bigotry. It is spreading bigotry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did I say bigotry? What I meant to say was religious freedom because religious freedom, of course, is the term that bigots prefer to use to discuss themselves. So, It's about bigotry, and it's about cancel culture. That's right. The big issue facing America, not the attack on the Capitol, not our lack of democracy, not climate change, not the utter ignorance that leads one of our political parties and tens of millions of Americans. Nope. The big issue for CPAC is cancel culture. And how do we know it's such a big issue for CPAC? Well, because they canceled speakers who they didn't like what they were going to say. And what they were going to say, of course, is how bad cancel culture is when liberals portray it. You, you just can't make up how utterly pathetic the right is at this point. So yes, in a conference where they are attacking the idea of cancel culture, they don't even have the ability to show any kind of self-awareness to not practice it themselves while they're actually going against it. So CPAC and what's going on there points out the difference between the two parties right now and why it's good to be a cult if you are the Republican criminal organization. We were reminded of how, how vast the differences are between the two political parties by the tough week that Joe Biden has had, President Joe Biden has had regarding some of his cabinet nominees. Something that, didn't seem to ever happen to the other guy. Certainly not under these circumstances. Because Biden, some of Biden's cabinet nominees are having a rough week, may not get in. And it's not just because of Republicans, it's because of Democrats. Maybe more namely Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia with help from Democrats and some other so-called swing states or conservative states. Manchin, of course, being from West Virginia, isn't even from a swing state. He's from a deeply red state. And this is what happens when you're not a party of cultists. In fact, in order for the Democrats to have any hope of taking power in this country, such as it is, they need to reach out across the political aisle to conservatives who just don't like the insanity on the right. And that means, as we're already seeing and as I've been warning about for for months, Democrats being able to advance this agenda with a bare majority in the Senate assumes that they can keep all the Democrats in order and we're already seeing that that is going to be too often impossible. Because the makeup of the Senate requires that Democrats appeal to conservatives. It doesn't require that Republicans appeal to moderates. But it does require Democrats to appeal to the conservatives, which means they can't really advance their agenda like Republicans can. Again, that was we were reminded of that when it came to confirmations for, for cabinet posts. Deb Holland, who we celebrated weeks ago as the first Native American designated for a cabinet post as interior secretary, is facing a rough time, from among others, Joe Manchin though there already seem to be indications he might back off that one. But the other one, famously having a tough time, is Neera Tandon, the first Asian-American pick to lead the Office of Management and Budget. Someone whose nomination may very well be going down, even as I speak, and certainly by the time you hear this. Not because Ms. Tandon or even Ms. Holland are not qualified. That's not what this is about. In fact, in the case of Deb Holland, her problem is that she's too qualified for interior. She's too qualified even for Democrat Joe Manchin from the state of West Virginia because Deb Holland believes in facts, reality, climate change, and thinks, like the entire rest of the sentient planet, that a shift away from fossil fuels is absolutely necessary if this country is going to survive. A shift away from fossil fuels, not immediately ending fossil fuel use, just, this isn't even controversial that this country needs to shift away from fossil fuels. It is not even controversial, unless you're in West Virginia. Then, it's controversial. But generally, it's not because these cabinet picks are not qualified. They're facing this opposition for, in the case of Neera Tandon, allegedly mean tweets. That's right. Yes, I know. We're going to get there. Those of you who are thinking, wait, mean tweets, didn't we just have the Trump presidency? Yes, good thinking on your part. But here's uh, Neera Tandon as, as a uh, progressive activist for a long time, was sending out provocative tweets. She, for instance, compared Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, to Voldemort. Actually, I don't know which is worse, him Voldemort or Moscow Mitch? I don't know. Is calling him Voldemort really so bad? I know J.K. Rowling's probably upset about it. I assume she thinks better of Voldemort. But that's so awful? Yeah, it is if you're in the payback revenge business. Some of her other nasty, mean, terrible tweets, remember, in the age of Trump? Tom Cotton is a fraud. Arkansas tenor, Senator Tom Cotton, who, let's be fair the nicest thing pretty much anyone's ever said about is that he's a fraud. I would point out that Tom Cotton is a piece of walking, talking shit, is human garbage, is human excrement. Uh Uh-oh, there goes my cabinet post in the future. How about, I like this one, vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. That was one of Neera Tandon's. Posts uh, that Twitter posts that led to uh, all, all this pushback. Vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Not really sure, but trying to figure out what's wrong with that one. I don't think it's the pro-vampire lobby that's offended by that. I don't think there's Anne Rice out there speaking out for, for vampires. I'm going to keep on with the literary references, whether you get them or not. But uh, here's here's my thought on that one. Um, vampires and, and their supporters might be upset because, unlike Ted Cruz, vampires can't go on sun vacations. Can't, for instance, go sunning in Cancun while their state is falling apart? That must be the problem with that one. That uh, Ted Cruz apparently, uh, yeah, uh, not only having less heart than vampires, but whatever heart he has, really not rising to to the quality of vampire hearts. So, yeah, not really sure how that one's so offended, so offending. But talking about a double standard, this is really offending Joe Manchin and others and gives moderate Republicans the lure they need to do what they have to do, which is vote with their party. Considering what has come out of Trump and Republican mouths, for a long time, including from Tom Cotton, by the way, including from Ted Cruz, not just from the president of the United States. This has to be a joke, right? This has to be a joke that she's not civil enough now for the United States Senate. Except this is what I talked about before before we even started on Democrats taking over after the election. You are going to see the tremendous double standard at this point where some kind of bar that Republicans have not been held to in generations. Well, it's now back in vogue now that the Repo- now that the Democrats are running the country. Reminder, Joe Manchin voted to confirm some of some of Donald Trump's worst cabinet appointments, worst nominees. And people are speculating from West Virginia, could the fact that the two women he's against are are women of color? Could that have something to do with the disapproval? Not meaning to trash West Virginia or anything here, I will probably in a few minutes. Anyway, this is all a reminder, again, that the Republican Party has no choice but to be a cult, to be divisive, and to lie all the time, even though Democrats can't get away with it, because the GOP has nothing but insanity to offer to the American public. Social conservatism now, for years under Trump, has been shown for what it is, bigotry. The Republicans have bigotry. Donald Trump has let it out of the closet. We're seeing it now in play. The House of Representatives just passed a bill to amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to prevent discrimination against the LGBTQ community. This is to build upon even a Supreme Court decision of only months ago, less than a year ago, that gave employment rights the LGBTQ community under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. But this will still be too much for a Republican Senate. They're already in the House and Senate coming out and bashing this because of the idea that Americans might treat the LGBTQ community as equals. Well, here's the thing on this. As the Supreme Court decision even indicates, while Republicans are bigoted, too many of them, are bigoted pieces of shit, they're losing. They're losing this battle. Despite what Trump did and the Republicans will do to try to slash the rights of the disadvantaged in this country, it's hard to imagine too much backtracking because there is simply too much public support for the rights of women, the rights of blacks, the, the rights of people of color of color in general, and yes, the LGBTQ community. But that's social conservatism, that's just the bigotry. Let's focus on what really are the pillars of mainstream conservatism, economic conservatism, both of which are in absolute disgrace right now. And we're not talking here the Trump-GOP ideology, which, of course, there was no Trump-GOP ideology, which means right now there is no Republican ideology. It's just its just power, naked, whatever they need to do. It's just all corruption. But over the years, when there was a mainstream Republican Party, they basically used as its foundation two things. The idea of supply-side policy, which is, if we just give the rich people more, in other words, our donors and ourselves, if we just give them more, we'll all be better off. Our economy will be better. Everything will be wonderful. Let's just give rich people more. Now, is this as absurd as it sounds? If you've been listening to the show, you know, of course it is. If you have any sense at all, you know, of course that it is. Republicans essentially were passing the hat around to normal, everyday working Americans and saying, please put all your money in. We're going to give it to rich people. But trust me, people, we're doing this for you. For years, for decades these working class people, the ones who turned on Fox News anyway, were ponying up, saying, yep, sounds good to me. Yep, sounds good. I'll I'll give you all, would you like my jewelry too? What else can I give you that will make rich people richer so that I will be better off? Well, as evidenced by the Biden economic plan, that might not be working well right now. But the other pillar of conservative economic ideology, of course, is market fundamentalism. The idea that the free market fixes all. The free market works efficiently. Everything works wonderfully as long as government stays out of the way. Well, both of these pillars are crashing down for anyone who lives in the real world. Let's start with supply side economics. And one of the tweets that got Uh, near a Tandon in trouble, was actually aimed at Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Alaska, regarding the bill from 2017 that Murkowski was supporting to cut the taxes of wealthy businesses. Sound like supply-side, really good supply-side idea? And what Tandon said regarding Murkowski was, Sounds like you're high on your own supply. The the cute double entendre there, of course, is your own supply refers to, well, you might be high. You must be smoking something if you believe this bullshit. But of course, the double entendre is supply side economics. You're high on your own supply side economics. Well, yes, they've been smoking that crack pipe for way too long. But now we've got the Biden rescue bill. And the thing with the Biden rescue bill is, one, it completely refutes supply-side economics. It goes completely against it because it actually gives money to people who could use the money. And second, as I indicated earlier in the show, it is tremendously popular. It has already now passed the House with the $15 minimum wage in it. Of course, as I indicated earlier, it awaits major changes in the United States Senate. But the Democrats are perfectly happy to keep this one in front of people for as long as possible, although they also, they obviously want it passed and they want the the checks to go to people as well. A reminder quickly what the rescue bill entails, $1,400 checks to individuals, expanded unemployment insurance coverage and payouts, aid for children, particularly hungry and starving children, state and local government support to those state and local governments, i.e. just about all of them that have been struggling because of COVID and otherwise, Uh, money for vaccinations, funding of schools, creation of jobs. America is now talking about a jobs guarantee. Remarkable what this says about the concept of supply-side economics and how maybe people aren't falling for it anymore, at least not right now. The minimum wage will not be in there as he indicated before, thanks to the Senate parliamentarian. But even in that front, Senator Bernie Sanders plans an amendment to the bill to take tax deductions away from large corporations that don't pay above $15 an hour wages. He wants it actually in the reconciliation bill. And the thing is, it's popular. Republicans, of course, are opposing the bill in force, despite its popularity. This is this is great. Republicans are opposing it. Uh, they're mostly opposing it, of course, because Democrats will get credit for it. And it'll do wonderful things, and that's what Republicans don't like. They're opposing it as a payout to liberals. That's what they're saying now. On Fox News not playing. This is a payout to liberals. Payoff for liberals. Just so I can translate that. The conservative criticism of the relief bill is that Democrats are trying to buy popularity by actually representing the public who votes. Wow, that's some unfair shit you got going on there. It's not fair if you're going to try to buy votes by actually representing people. (laughs) Man. Anyway, shockingly, so far, it's not working for Republicans. Um... What's funny about this is the extent to which maybe Donald Trump's reign and all of Donald Trump's bullshit, his blatant lies about the working man and the elites and doing something about it, even though Donald Trump had absolutely no interest in ever helping the working men and women in this country. What's ironic here is that his saying it all the time may have actually raised their expectations so much that they're not willing to accept being screwed anymore Just so they can stick it to the minorities and women. Maybe they actually want to start sharing some of that stuff that was supposed to be trickling down all these years. But the other way that conservative market ideology is in flames or conservative economic ideology in flames is this idea of market supremacy and market perfection. The idea that markets are somehow efficient. I have been attacking that for years on this show, but now it's kind of an easy argument to make. I pointed out a couple weeks ago, GameStop, why so many people are taking some joy out of this blatant corruption of our financial markets, the stock market in particular, because it's so indicative of the fact that our financial markets and our stock markets are being corrupted all the time and manipulated all the time. This was a reaction to the fact that hedge funds always manipulate the stock market. The reaction from Republicans was, hey, it's not fair. Hedge funds are supposed to be manipulating the market, not other people. That's why so many are celebrating on the left and right what happened with GameStop, even though it was awful. You no, know, People got rich, people got poor for no good reason at all. Certainly nothing having to do with anything contributing to our economy. This is a reminder of the power of disinformation in our society. It's a reminder why Republicans had the likes of Rush Limbaugh and continue to have the likes of Sean Hannity and, and dozens, hundreds of others just like him. Because disinformation is power. Just like in a free market system, it is information that is supposed to be power. Well, this is another reminder how much bullshit it is to think that people actually have information in a free market. In order for the free market to function efficiently, basic economic theory tells us you need the dissemination of information. This is a reminder that we do not have that, and therefore we have market failure. Of course, the other big story in the news that was discrediting the whole idea of market efficiency was the Texas Energy Deregulation. Republicans have been telling us that if we just got government out of the energy market, energy would be cheaper and better for everybody. Well, of course, at the end of the day, it didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, So I think that article title in the New York Times, Texas shows how utilities aren't ready for extremes. Well, it turns out businesses tend to not be ready for extremes. The market doesn't tend to prepare for an uncertain future, not when there's money to be collected now. And that's certainly problematic when it comes to something like energy, which, as we're seeing right now, people's lives depend upon. What instead we are seeing is that energy companies will do the absolute minimum that they can do in order to make as much profit as they can today. It's funny because, uh, funny it funny not in a haha sense, a few months ago, my electrical carrier, PSE&G Long Island, had shitty equipment that led to an energy spike that blew out many of my appliances and cost me thousands of dollars in electrical and appliance damage. I just this week got a letter from PSE&G responding to my and my neighbor's request, put in a claim, saying PSE&G has no responsibility for this. We were not negligent. We didn't do this on purpose. We just, you know, of course, weren't spending the money we needed to do to make sure that our equipment wasn't a piece of shit. And therefore, it's your fucking problem. It's not ours. This, of course, is a perfect reminder of what happened in Texas. They knew that when the shit hit the fan which wouldn't be running because they weren't, didn't have any electricity, but you get the idea. When the shit hit the fan, it wouldn't be their freaking problem. It would be somebody else's problem. So they just didn't deal with it. There was no point preparing for contingencies or problem or upgrading your services because it would be somebody else's problem later on. Aside from anything else, the people making these decisions probably figured that by the time it really got bad, somebody else would now be running these agencies and it certainly wouldn't be their problem in that respect as well. So we learn that businesses, despite what Republicans have been telling us in my lifetime, throughout my lifetime, are not very good at evaluating risk. Whether or not they're good at it, they don't try very hard to do it. They're simply not wired for it. Sorry, pun intended there. I look in this story of market efficiency, government and corporate, and corporate America in general, and the idea of short-term versus long-term thinking. It is, again, basic market fundamentalism that the markets and people are supposed to be thinking long-term rather than short-term. That's why kids go to college. That's why you save and prepare for the future because we're supposed to be thinking long-term rather than short-term. However, we are reminded that when it comes to businesses and when it comes to political leaders, their long-term interests do not match the interests of the people who are running them. If I'm the governor of New York, I don't give a shit what's happening in New York in 15 years when I'm no longer the governor. If I'm the CEO of ExxonMobil, I don't give a shit what's happening with ExxonMobil 10 years from now when I'm no longer the CEO. I just want my I want to cash in my cop uh, my stock options when the price is as high as possible. So I will make like GameStop and manipulate my stock price as much as I can, manipulate my financial statements as as of the time I'm retiring, so that when I leave, I can maximize my profits from my sales of stock. So we are seeing the results of short-term versus long-term thinking, which is inevitable in the system we've got. We're also seeing that the interests of business are often not aligned with the interests of the world. That what makes electrical utilities a lot of money today, or PSE&G today, is not good for the future of their citizens down the road. What's good for GM may not be so good for the community GM is in. The fundamentals of our economic system are broken. We do not have the information that we need for the market to work properly. We are reminded with the Texas regulation utility problem that we do not have the competition that is required in order for the free market to function efficiently. Like information, a fundamental requirement of a functioning free market system is competition. And we continue to be reminded how too many of our industries simply do not have competition. And therefore, companies are able to be run in ways that benefit some benefit the owners of those companies but harm everybody else including society and including the free market unfortunately we are also reminded that as much as competition is required for the free market to function efficiently the fact is it too can sometimes have a negative impact that in fact could be seen among utility companies who might be competing for a lot of money that's available today. Spending money to shore up their future prospects and thus perhaps raising their prices today is not a good option. And often what happens is even when you have a competitive environment, what you see is that companies neglecting the future, neglecting preparing for eventualities that should, they should be buckling up for because the competition is forcing them to cut corners and take chances that they shouldn't otherwise be taking. Speaking of long-term versus short-term economic failures, there is an effort underway in California to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. I was asked about this in class the other day, and it got me thinking a lot about it and what it means in relation to the subjects that I'm talking about in today's show. First of all, as I said to my students, Can you expect that the governor of California made some mistakes when it came to handling the state during COVID? Of course, we all make mistakes. And certainly when we're dealing with something new and unknown, of course he made mistakes. Everybody made mistakes. The great Anthony Fauci made mistakes. If you are a conservative, you use that as a reason to utterly discredit doing anything in the first place. But for the rest of us, if we're thinking human beings, it just says, yeah, so people made mistakes. Did he work on correcting them? Not many leaders in this country achieve Trump-like perfection where they get everything right. Or, you know, the cult believes that anyway. Or, for that matter, corporate-like perfection where they get everything right all the time like the free markets. In this case, let's be fair, Governor Newsom did make some serious dumbass moves. Some optical dumbass moves like, for instance, showing up without a mask at a fundraising event with rich and powerful people, demonstrating the chutzpah of the rich and powerful, not just if you're a politician, but if you're a corporate leader as well. But ultimately, what this recall of the California governor, I think, shows is, again, this concept of short-term versus long-term thinking. And one of the things that comes out, businesses, small businesses in California are... Allegedly leading the charge for the recall. Why? Because he forced them to shut down. Were mistakes made regarding letting some businesses stay open? Sure. But that's not really what the objection is here. The objection is here that a bunch of stores lost their money and in some cases lost their livelihoods because they were forced to think about the future. Does anybody think that shutting down California more than we did when COVID was first had would not have been a good long-term decision for America, we now know that the problem that America had was that we did not act quickly and strongly enough, even though we made mistakes in how we did it. But what we're seeing here among these business owners is two things. One, I don't give a shit about the long-term. I want what's mine now. And two, that long term thinking is a luxury that too many people in America can't afford. Here, with many of the small business owners, you do have to feel for them because they didn't have the luxury to think long term because they went out of business before they were able to open back up after COVID when we finally got a handle on that. And that is true of America. One of the reasons that we don't think long term like we should be, and we've got market and democratic failure is because we've got too many poor people in this country who cannot afford the luxury of looking to the future, who cannot afford the luxury of not shopping in stores like Walmart, because that's all they can afford. So by impoverishing so much of this country, we actually prevent us from thinking long-term and being efficient and doing what we need to do for the future. And we're also reminded with the recall effort that... What what should the solution be when you've got a crisis like this, a deadly pandemic, what requires you to shut down and that's going to have a disproportionate negative impact on small business owners? Well, that might lead some people to think what you should do is do what you need to do to save people's lives and prepare for the future and shut down, but find a way Maybe by taking from people who are getting rich because of the pandemic, richer because of the pandemic, and give it to the people whose businesses are suffering. Sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what the Democrats did and are doing again. So once again, proving that the Democrats are right on all over there. They're trying to, to recall Gavin Newsom, the Democrat. What? And replace him with a Republican who was against doing anything and helping small business owners? Yes, because if we just let... COVID run rampant in America, sure, businesses would be doing a lot better than that. But of course, the biggest story, undoubtedly, we will find out of the next few weeks regarding the Gavin Newsom recall, is that this is not, in fact, a grassroots movement spontaneously created by suffering people and small business owners. But it is, in fact, politically motivated and engineered an astroturf movement that is being engineered by billionaires and Republicans to attack a Democratic governor. And that is a reminder, the power, as we will find out, of the people who get to manipulate Americans even against their own interests. It is a reminder that in order to fix this country with all that ails it and all the difficulties in actually making our political system work properly to to benefit this country, that it will take nothing less than a revolution to fix this country. And over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about what that revolution should look like. Until then, that's it for today's show. Be safe until I talk to you soon. Be well. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal.